Thank you, Robbie. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. We are continuing our series in Ephesians called Beholding the Body of Christ. It is a, an appropriate thing that we do that and that we do it together on our Sunday morning is that God would just increase our vision and desire for the local church to see what God is doing in and through the local church. We're going to be looking at Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23 this morning. Emily, in just a moment, is going to read that for us. But before she does, I just want to encourage all the kids or those who are young at heart, kids at heart. To, we do have the sermon sheets. We have coloring sheets in the back if you want to get those, fill them out. I was actually telling Tad before the, before the service here that I actually enjoy grabbing one of those every Sunday morning to fill out. It helps keep me focused. It helps me follow along with the sermon. So adults, I give you, I, I release you from any burden of conscience. You can grab the kids' sermon outlines, grab those, and see if it helps you follow along like it does me. Well, Emily, you want to come read our passage. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thank for you, thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Remember hearing the story of a, of a man named Robert Robinson. One day, Robert Robinson boards a, a carriage in London and he had hoped to be riding alone. But across the aisle from him was a, was a young woman who was carrying in her hands a, a small book full of, of poems and hymns and prayers. Robinson didn't uh, feel like talking, and so they rode along in silence for a few minutes. And then the young woman breaks the silence. She throws the book across the aisle at Robinson and says, says Sir, you've got to read this. These words are so beautiful. Robinson opened the book and read the words she had been reading, and he reads, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And as he reads these words, his face sinks. The young woman sitting across from him can see that something has changed. Why, Why has his disposition changed? And she said, Sir, do you know these words? To which he replies, Miss... I wrote these words more than 25 years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds to feel today what I felt back then. Such, such heartbreaking and yet all too relatable words. I would give a thousand worlds today to feel, or to feel today what I felt back then. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I can certainly relate with Robinson, filled with this longing to experience the realities of the truths that I, that I know and the truths that I believe. But all too often I find myself unmoved or perhaps slightly moved at best by the truths that I profess. And I know that many of you can relate as to, or can relate with this too. I've, I've spoken with many of you about this same struggle. And so as we approach our text today, we need to ask the question, what is, what is the remedy here? What is the solution? What are we supposed to do in response to this common situation that we all have of not feeling the truths that we believe? And in our passage this morning, we see the remedy for all of us who are struggling to respond to the truths of who God is and what he has done for us. For all of us who struggle to respond to the glorious truths that we saw last week, one after another in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14, what uh, John Piper called a dump truck of gospel truth. For all of us who, who read those words and we find ourselves unmoved or perhaps slightly moved by them. If you can relate with my experience last week as I sat where you are, this passage here gives us the remedy of what we do as we see in this passage that God calls us to pray to him that we might know and experience him more. That's what, that's what God's remedy for us. God, as he is aware and we are aware of our struggle to experience the truths that we believe, God calls us to pray to him that we might know and experience these truths, that we might know him more. This morning, as we look at these verses, as we look at, these, as we look at this prayer, I want to answer two questions together that we might grasp the fullness of what God has for us in this passage. And the first question I want us to consider is, is what is the main thing that Paul is praying for? This verse, much like verses 3 through 14, verses 15 to 23, is another long sentence in the Greek. You can just find yourself getting lost as you, you read verse after verse. You can think, what, what, what's going on here, Paul? What is the, the main thing that you want me to get here? And so look with me as we see the main thing in verse 17. As Paul prays for the Ephesians, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That, that's what Paul's after here. Paul is after that God would give these Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now this last phrase here, in the knowledge of him, it's a, it's a bit tricky to, to see in, in the ESV here what exactly Paul means by that. I actually think that the, the NIV, while it's not a, a word-for-word -word translation, I think it, it better captures Paul's heart, what Paul is after in these words, where it translates that last phrase, so that we may know him better. Paul is praying for the Ephesians that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know God better. That is, that is Paul's desire for the Ephesians because that is God's desire for the Ephesians. And as we read that passage today, that is God's desire for each and every one of us that we would know him better. And as we've seen time and time again, we saw this all throughout the Gospel of John, this, this knowledge when Paul says, I want you to know God better, he's not talking about simply knowing more facts about who God is. That, that wasn't the Ephesians' problem. They just had 11 straight verses of fact after fact after fact of who God is and who he is for them. They didn't need more knowledge of understanding. They needed a knowledge of experience. That's what Paul's praying for here. 
James, James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, he recounts this, this famous quip from Mark Twain, um, perhaps you're familiar with it, um, where at one point Mark Twain said, he who holds a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. He who holds a cat by the tail learns something that he can learn in no other way. And we all understand what Twain's saying, right? Like, I could sit you down, and we could spend two hours, and I can explain to you all the ins and outs of what is going to happen if you grab a cat by the tail. I mean, hopefully you're going to learn a lot, and hopefully you're going to learn to never, ever do that. But what you would learn from sitting down with me would be very different than if you went home today or if you went over to a friend's house today and grabbed a cat by the tail. You are going to learn what that is like. You are gaining a knowledge of the cat by the tail that I would never be able to explain to you. And that's exactly what Paul is praying here for the Ephesians. He's praying that they would know, that they would experience God in a way that is so different than any way that they could by just knowing a list of facts about who he is and what he's done for. He is praying here that they will grow in their experiential understanding of who God is. In verse 18, we see a, a vivid illustration of what Paul's after here when he writes and he prays that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You see that? That's what, that's what Paul is using here as he explains what he means by growing in their knowledge of Christ. He says, I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened. Those phrase here, eyes of our hearts, it's a, it's a bit of a strange phrase. We don't talk like that very much. But as we realize that in the Bible, when we read the word heart, oftentimes we're not talking about the, the organ in our chest, the organ that is keeping us alive. But in the Bible, when they talk about our hearts, they're talking about the very core of who we are. When we see that, then it makes sense why Paul would pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open. You see, biblically speaking, the, the heart is like the steering wheel of our lives. It, all of our thoughts and our desires, our, our plans, our purposes, our decisions, the, the directions we make, the choices we make, they all, they all come out of, they are all driven by our hearts, by what we love. And so here Paul is praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would see who God is so that it would change every single thing about them. It would change how they think. It would change how they feel. It would change how they act. Not that it would just give them more information, but that it would fundamentally change them at the core of who they are. You see, Paul doesn't want the realities of verses 3 through 14 to enlighten the eyes of our heads only. He's giving us more information. He wants them to illuminate the eyes of our hearts so they will affect all of us are thinking, are desiring, and our loves. When we get to the second question, we're going to see what that looks like. We are going to flesh that out a little bit. But first, before we do that, we need to see how does it happen? How, how do the eyes of our hearts, how are the eyes of our hearts enlightened? How do we, do we know God better? And we see the answer in verse 17. The answer is by receiving the spirits of wisdom and revelation. That is how we grow in the knowledge of God. That is how the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. That happens as we receive the spirits of wisdom and revelation. 
Now, as we saw last week, these, these Ephesians, they have, they have already received the Holy Spirit. They have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit, as we saw in verse 14. So here, Paul isn't praying that these Ephesians would, would, would receive for the first time this Holy Spirit. No, they've, they've already received that. Here, Paul is praying that the Ephesians who've already received the Holy Spirit would have a deepening experience of this Holy Spirit as he reveals God's heart for us to us. You see, Paul knows that it's only the Holy Spirit that can take the truths that we know and show them to be beautiful to our hearts so that we are moved by them. It is only the Holy Spirit who can open the eyes of our hearts so that we will truly see and be captivated by this vision of who our God is and who he is for us. And so he prays. He prays that God, by the Holy Spirit, would reveal himself to us and enable us to experience him in deeper, more fuller, and more intimate ways. Don't, don't you desire this, church? Don't you desire to experience God in this way? Is this what you long for? Because the encouraging thing that we see in this passage here is that this is exactly what God desires for each and every one of us here. He desires to be known by us. God isn't hiding from us. God is not playing hard to get. He wants us to know him better. He desires that we would know him in more intimate ways. And so he has given us this passage. He has given us this prayer that we might do just that. So let's pray. Let's, let's pray this for our own hearts. If you are experiencing a gap in your knowledge of understanding of who God is, in your knowledge of experience of who God is, oh, let Ephesians 1 be quick on your lips to pray to God and ask that he would give you this spirit, that he would enable you to experience, in this, experience these realities. Let us, let us follow Paul's example here as we actually pray this for other people. That's what he's doing here, right? He is praying for the Ephesians, that they would grow in their knowledge and experience of God. So as you work through your prayer list, or as you think, I don't know how to pray for other people, let Ephesians 1 be a template for you right now. As you seek to pray for your friends and your family, pray that they would know God better, because there is nothing that any of us need more than to know God better, to know Him in more intimate and deep ways. And I know I speak for all of the elders of the church when I ask that you would pray this for us. Be praying this for your elders. Pray this for all of us, that we would have a real deep and full knowledge of who our God is for us. So that's, that's the answer to our first question. What is, the, what is the main thing that Paul is praying for? Here in these, in these verses, we're seeing that Paul is praying that we would know and experience God better. But there's more to this prayer, as we see, which leads us to our second question of what does it look like? What does it look like to know God better? You see, Paul knows that knowing God better is really big and really vague. And so he shows us what it looks like. As he continues in this prayer, he gets more specific, showing us three realities in particular that God wants us to know. Look with me again at verses 18 and 19 as we see what these three realities are that Paul wants us to know. Paul writes, he's praying for them. He says, he, he prays that they would know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? What are those three things? He wants us to know and experience the hope, 
the riches and the power that are ours in Christ. Let's just briefly look at each of these that we might have some handles on what this looks like in our own lives right now as we struggle to know and experience God better. So first, our hope. To know and experience God better means that we are aware and that we live in, the, we live in light of the hope to which he has called us. Now, this hope certainly has, has many different facets to it. The, the New Testament is, is rich with the hope that we have as believers. But I think ultimately, as we look at what is our ultimate hope, what Paul calls the hope of glory, what we are talking about is being with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. What Robbie was mentioning just a couple minutes ago. That is our, our ultimate hope. That is what we are looking forward to. We are looking forward to being in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Because no matter what is going on in our lives right now, or whatever may come up in our lives in the next week, next month, or next couple years, what we need more than anything is to have an absolute confidence and a, and a concrete understanding and experience of what our hope is as we look forward to that day when we will be with Christ and everything will be made right. And oh, I just think, as I've even been looking at my own life, I just think, how much do I need this hope? How much do I need to, to know and experience this hope? Because all too often, it is easy, very easy for me to just intellectually know this hope. You ask Josh, what's the, what's the answer on the test here? What is your hope? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill it out. I'm going to ace that test. But in the middle of the night, when my head is laying on my pillow and I am just worried or anxious about whether it's my kids or what the future is going to look like, in those moments, I know, intellectually know this truth, but I'm not experiencing that, experiencing that reality in those moments where as I lay in the bed, as I'm staring at the ceiling, going through worst case scenarios. I don't know if you can relate with that at all, but in those moments, it is not a lack of understanding that is causing me to worry and be anxious, but it is a lack of experiencing the reality of this hope. But God doesn't want us doing that. He doesn't want us mulling over worst case scenarios in our head. He wants us to be so captivated by our hope that one day we will be with Christ, that one day we will never again struggle or suffer, that one day all things will finally and fully be made new, that that reality just trumps anything that is going on in our life, anything that is causing us to struggle. So that as we lay awake at night, as we are thinking about those things, instead of worrying, we can experience his peace and we can rest trusting in God, knowing that there is a sure hope that we have. And we know that whatever happens in this life, we can have an absolute confidence that our hope, what God has promised to us, will come about. That's what this hope is meant to do for us. It is meant to, to put everything in perspective as it helps us realize that one day things won't be like this. And so we can be like the Apostle Paul as we think about all the struggles and the suffering he was experiencing, aware of the hope that he had in 2 Corinthians 4. He could say that all of his struggling, all of his suffering was light and momentary. That wasn't to, to minimize the hard things he was going through. Read 2 Corinthians 4. He went through 
through some very difficult things. But what the hope did for Paul is it didn't minimize the hard things he was going through, but the hard things that he was going through actually maximized and intensified the hope as he was aware of all of the things that he will not be experiencing in the new heavens and the new earth when he is with Christ. The hard things in life enabled him to grow and it intensified and it increased his longing for the day when Christ returns. And that is what God wants to do in our lives. That is why God wants us to know the hope of our callings, that in the midst of the hard things that we are walking through right now, that we can have a right perspective on them, and so we can persevere, we can keep going. And so to do this, we pray, we ask God that in the midst of whatever we are facing, that we will know and that we will experience this hope and that it will be more real to us than whatever struggles we are facing. As God answers this prayer, which I trust he will in our hearts, then we will grow deeper and deeper in our experience of him. So that is, that is the first thing that it looks like to, to know God better, to grow deeper in your relationship with God. It means that you know and experience this hope that is yours, the hope of God's calling. But secondly, we see that, it, that knowing God's better means that we know the riches of God's inheritance. Look again at verse 18. Paul prays here that we will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, as Tad mentioned last week, there, there are, are two different ways that we could read this inheritance language here in the book of Ephesians, particularly in this verse. It can either receive to the inherit, it can either uh, talk about the inheritance that we receive from God. Or it can talk about as, or it can talk about, it refer to us being the inheritance that God receives. Paul and the New Testament writers make both of these points that we will receive a great inheritance from God, and we as His people are a great inheritance to God. And so you wouldn't be wrong to take this either way, but as we look at this passage here, I am inclined to see verse 18 referring to us, referring to you and to me as God's inheritance. What Paul is praying here is that we would be aware of the value that God places on us, that when God looks at us, that he sees us as his treasured possession. After all, it is, it is us. We are the reason why Christ left the glories of heaven to come down, to experience life in this fallen world, to die a sacrificial death on the cross, and to be raised to newness of life, that he might also raise us, that we might be with him. So often we can just be so tempted to think such small thoughts, or even to think that thinking that Jesus came for us is, is somehow dangerous, right? Oh, no, no, you're going to, you can't think too much about yourself. I, I know that I've, there's, I've experienced this own tension in my heart that it's, there's almost, it feels wrong to say that we are the reason why Christ came down because of his great love for us. But that is exactly the picture that we see here. In the Bible, and we see it in the New Testament, we see it here in this passage, is God wants us to see that we are the riches of God's inheritance. And this isn't because we are intrinsically worthy, because we're not, but it is because we have been identified with Christ, as Paul said again and again in verses 3 through 14, that we are in Christ. 
As we think about this reality of knowing the value that we have to God, it's not just that Paul wants us to, to intellectually know this truth because that is easy, but Paul wants us to grasp and experience the reality of what we are, of who we are to him. Because the truth is, so often you and I can be just like the 16-year-old girl who once walked into Tim Keller's study. You see, this girl, her parents had noticed that she was discouraged and she was beginning to become depressed. And so they took her to see her pastor. Keller recounts how he could, he could see that she was discouraged. And so he tried encouraging her with the truths of the gospel. And then came the moment of the truth where he is just reading out fact after fact. He is just telling her all of these gospel truths about who she is. And she blurts out, yes, I know that Jesus loved me. He saved me. And he's going to take me to heaven when I die. But what good is any of that if no boy will even look at me? Now, this isn't just a 16-year-old girl problem, right? We can, we can all relate with, this, with, the, with her experience because all of us know the truths of the gospel with the eyes of our heads. We, we know what God thinks about us. Yes, he saved us. Yes, he loved us. Yes, we're going to go to heaven when we die. But all too often, the eyes of our hearts tell us a different story. Maybe you experience a, a sense of shame when you think about how God or with how anyone else thinks of you, you, you're overcome with feelings that you just don't have any value or any worth at all. Or maybe you walk around with just a deep awareness that you just will never measure up. God knows that we all struggle with these things. This is a struggle of what it means to have a fallen heart living in this fallen world. We all struggle with these things. And we can be tempted to, to be like this 16-year-old girl and to, to find our value and our worth in what other people think of us or in, um, or in our performance here so that no matter what's going on, whether it's no boy in school will look at us or whatever or whoever it is for you that you are looking to for this sense of worth or validation, whatever it is, what God, whenever you're more aware of that, what God thinks of you becomes irrelevant. You can say, yeah, I know God's going to do all those things. I know God thinks all these things of me. But what good is any of that when X, Y, or Z isn't happening? When this person's not approved, when, I, when this person won't approve of me, or when I'm not finding acceptance here, God knows that we all struggle with that. So that's why Paul prays that we would know the riches of God's glorious inheritance, that we would know the value that we have to him so that we would know and experience that in very tangible ways so that what other people think of us would be irrelevant. You see, God does, because that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to know deep in our bones what Dan Arthur recently reminded all of us elders this last Thursday. Because God wants all of us to know that we are deeply loved by God, that we are completely forgiven, fully pleasing, powerfully equipped, totally accepted and complete in Christ. That is why Paul gives us this prayer to pray. This is why God gives us this prayer to pray because he wants us to know and experience the reality of who we really and truly are to him. That as we come to God, we are always already loved and accepted and forgiven and pleasing and complete in Christ. That is always already true of everyone who is in Christ because of what Jesus has done. So I just want to ask, is this how you think 
God thinks of you? Is this how you feel God feels towards you, loved and forgiven and pleasing? You struggle to believe that? If you can relate with me and struggle to believe that, then pray this prayer. Pray this prayer for yourself. Pray this prayer for me so that this story of who we are to God becomes more true to us than anything else that we are aware of so that we will know God better. So we know God better by knowing our hope, by knowing our, our riches, the riches that we are to God. And lastly, we know God as we grasp the power of, that we, that we, as we grasp God's power toward us. Look with me at verse 19. Paul prays that we will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. We grow in our knowledge and experience of God as we experience the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And just how great is this power toward, how great is God's power? Well, verses 19 to 22 show us in striking detail just how great God's power is. I wanna, I wanna read this again so you would just sit and feel the immensity of God's power. Paul, Paul prays that we will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head to the church. I mean, Paul really wants to make sure that we know how great God's power is. Did you see the three things that God's power does here? God's power raised Christ from the dead. It seated him at God's right hand, and it gave him as head over all things. This is speaking of Christ's resurrection, Christ's exaltation, and Christ's enthronement that are all the direct results of God's power. Now, we could and probably should say much about each and every one of those, but I just want to briefly focus on the reality of Christ's resurrection. I think for all of us who have grown up in or around the church, we are very familiar with the truth of the resurrection. We know that without it, there is no gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. And because it is so central and so foundational, we can just easily assume it and move on. But we can't do this because as we look at the reality of the resurrection, we see that it is the supreme demonstration of God's power. When God raised Christ from the dead, he did what had never been done before. He did not just reverse the process, restoring Jesus back to life like Jesus had done for Lazarus but had done for Lazarus, who would only go on to die again. But when he raised Jesus, he didn't just reverse the course of his life, but he raised him to a brand new life, an altogether new life. He raised him to resurrection life as he received an immortal and glorious body, just like we someday will. I mean, this is, this is an amazing thing. We are just, just meant to stop and to pause and to reflect on the power of God that is able to do the impossible. That is what, what Paul is pointing out here. But he doesn't want us to just stop right there because the amazing thing is, is that Paul doesn't want us to just know what God's great power has done in the past. But he wants us to know that that resurrection power is available for each and every one of us right now. You see that in verse 19? This is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. 
this power is available to us right now. And I think the problem, if you can relate with me at all, is that I just do not play, lay hold of this power. I just don't grab hold of this power. I don't mean it in any health and wealth gospel, any name it and claim it ways. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that in the midst of my struggling and my suffering, just all too often, I can doubt and I can question God's power towards me. I wonder if you can relate. I mean, just, just think about a current challenging situation that you are facing right now. It could be a relational conflict, a problem at work, a, a financial concern. Perhaps it's just an ongoing struggle with sin that is just plaguing you. And as you think about this situation, whatever it is for you, how often have you thought to yourself, it is what it is. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Anything I say or do, it's not going to change things at all. Perhaps you find yourself constantly battling discouragement or, or despair as you just become convinced that things are never, ever going to change. This relationship is never, ever going to get better. Our marriage is just going to always look like this. Or this child will, will never turn out the right way. They will just never be able to, to stop being angry or whatever it is for you. As you think about this situation, you can become easily discouraged and depressed. And, and now I don't want to minimize any hard things that you are walking through. And I know that many of you are walking through really hard things right now. But when we think things like this, when those thoughts cross our mind, what we can do is we can be subtly denying God's power to work in that situation. We can be doubting that this power is available to work in and through us. But Paul, but Paul wants us to know, and he is praying that we will believe that if God can defeat death and evil through the resurrection of Jesus, then he is able to help us in the midst of whatever we are facing right now. Whatever that situation you came to mind when I asked earlier, whatever that situation is, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is indwelling in you right now through the person of the Holy Spirit. And that power is available to you that you might experience in whatever situation you are going through. Do you, do you believe that? I mean, God's power, this resurrection power, has the ability to drastically change whatever situation you are working, you are facing right now. God has, and God certainly can do that again. He's done it before, and I'm sure he will do it again. But as we think about the struggles in our life, I think what is more likely is that we will experience God's power the same way the Apostle Paul did, this power that God makes perfect in our weaknesses. We will our experience of this resurrection power. It might not necessarily change our circumstances, but this power can change us, enabling us to embrace our weaknesses and to live in God's power. The power of God that is available to us can enable us to, to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. It can help us to keep loving that person despite the relational difficulties. That's what God's power can do. God's power can enable us to walk in joy no matter what the no matter what our circumstances are. And God's power can enable us to experience peace in the midst of chronic pain, in the midst of struggling and suffering. God's power can enable us to experience peace in the midst of those. And you can keep 
keep going, working through the fruit of the Spirit. That is what God's power wants to do in our lives. That is the resurrection power that we have available to us and that Paul is praying that the Ephesians themselves would experience and that God, through giving us this prayer, is wanting us to pray for ourselves and for others that we would experience that same power as well because God wants us to know him better. He wants us to grow in our knowledge and experience of his resurrection power because as we do this, just like with his hope and with his riches, we will know him better. As we think about God's power, that also just gives us a great confidence to pray this prayer because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is able to help is able to overcome our hopelessness and fill us with hope. It is able to overcome our guilt and shame and it can empower us to believe that we are God's treasured possessions. And this power is able to overcome our doubting and our despair as we experience his power and our weakness. So what does it look like for us to know God better? It looks like knowing and experiencing his hope, his riches, and his power that are ours in Christ. I open, this, I open the, the sermon here by quoting Robert Robinson. And he said that I would give a thousand worlds to feel today what I felt back then. We all struggle to rightly respond to the truths of who God is and what he has done for us. And I hope that as we've seen this prayer, as we've seen this passage this morning, that you have been hearing God's invitation to you to call out to him, to pray to him, that he might enable you to know and to experience him more. I can imagine that all those years before that Robinson had this passage in mind as he wrote this song, which is really a, a prayer that God would tune our hearts to sing his praise, that God would let his grace bind our wondering hearts to them. I want to invite Rick to come down the Lord's Supper service to be uh, prep for that. Because we're going to close our service here by taking the Lord's Supper together. And it is just such an appropriate reminder to us. And it's just helpful that we do because it is a, a tangible reminder to us of the things that we've been seeing in this prayer. It is a, a reminder that we, can, that we can touch and that we can taste of our hope of our riches and our power it reminds us of our hope that one day we will feast with Christ. It reveals the riches we are to God as we see the price that Christ paid that he might restore us to himself. And it proclaims God's power towards us. That's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, what we are celebrating in the supper. And each week we do this because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is God's covenant sealed with my blood. Drink from it in remembrance of me. So in just a moment, when you are ready, come forward, grab the, the bread and the cup from the Lord's Supper servers. And as you take them, reflect on the hope, the riches, and the power that are yours in Christ. For those of you who are here who have, who have not trusted in Christ, we'd ask that in this time that you would, would not take the Lord's Supper, but that you would take Christ, that you would, would see who he is for you in these passages, that you would see the hope, the power, and the riches that are available to 